I'm leaving now. Where are you going? Where are you going? Don't worry, Theon. I'm just going. You can tell the people what you know. Come on. Hook us up, Bran. Welcome back to Shad on TV, Game of Thrones edition, the unofficial podcast companion piece to the juggernaut HBO series, Game of Thrones. I'm one of your hosts, Gene Lyons, and alongside me is my co-host, Big D, Dick Ebert. Good evening. And this is our deep dive episode where we look back at this week's episode of Game of Thrones and share our insights, research, and opinions. This week's episode was entitled The Long Night, the longest ever episode of Game of Thrones and our biggest single day for Game of Thrones downloads with more than 72,000 downloads. Just a testament to how huge this show has become, and we appreciate all the listeners. Yeah, and it, as nice as it was to hit fifteen, I mean, it it was a dream. We're, you know, we're we're, we're within striking distance of uh, TED Talk and cereal, which is too funny. Uh, we got an email over the weekend that kind of put it into perspective in a different way for us. You know, everybody, we think you know we're we're doing a television show and everybody's having fun. And I got a real sad email from one of our listeners, Matthew from uh, Alabama, and he shared with us that he had recently lost his his young son. And he was thanking us for the podcast, giving him almost a therapeutic distraction. He said, what he's going through is so difficult and, and so profoundly affecting his life that the little time that we could give him and the distance, the familiarity that he has with us, but yet there's a little distance there really helped him. For me, it put all of the hours that we put into the podcast into perspective. It's great to be 15. But we never even stop to think sometimes that we actually make an impact and an honest connection with people. So we do appreciate you. And, and in honor of Matthew and, and his son, Jack, we want to dedicate this episode to him. Hopefully we can give him, you know, another hour of distraction. And everybody out there, the ones you love, just give them a hug and, uh, and appreciate what you have. So, so Matthew, this one goes out to you. Thank you very much for letting us into your life and feeling comfortable enough to share that. Uh, and, and we appreciate you being along with us on this journey, and we appreciate your friendship. Part of doing this podcast and part of what makes it so satisfying for me is after the show airs, after the closing credits are over, and we begin that dialogue with the audience and really find out what everybody enjoyed about the show, people's gripes about it. And it just really helps me digest and see different viewpoints. And after this episode, episode three, I felt like it was almost like a family squabble. You know, we had people saying they loved it. People said they hated it. People said the writing was cheap. People said the writing was fantastic. And friends on both sides of the aisle there. And I've really had some time to digest it. And I got to start by saying I completely misspoke when I said the scene between Tyrion and Sansa in the crypt was the most powerful part of the episode. I'm not wrong on that. It was powerful. It was great. But I was a victim of my own distraction. One of the unfortunate parts about doing the podcast, and you've mentioned it before, Big D, is we miss a lot of what's on the screen. This entire episode was powerful, and I really wish I hadn't watched this on a TV screen that was 15 feet away from me while taking notes on a laptop, shooting bright light into my eyes. <laughs> I fucked up. I fucked up badly. Guys, if you didn't watch it the right way, go back and watch this entire episode. I'm sure everyone has at this point, but this needs to be viewed at the best quality possible <laughs> with zero distractions because this episode, The Long Night, is a visual masterpiece. The dialogue is okay. The action is very good. 
And the way things turned out is debatable. But from a visual standpoint, this isn't a dark, muddy mess. This thing was a gorgeous piece of art that I could watch over and over again. Yeah, you texted me today and you said, I wish we weren't doing the podcast that I could just sit down and watch this episode for fun. And that's one of the things that sucks about doing the podcast is you're taking notes, you get a little bit distracted. So today I went back and rewatched it. And I got to say, I did notice what everybody seemed to be complaining about the muddy picture quality. First time through, I didn't even notice it. Today, I watched it with subtitles, and I know that the the background gradient where the words actually come in, there's a, a dark you know, or a black fade that comes in. And for me, it was noticeable that there was a different gradient and that affected the overall picture quality. So I see what people are talking about. But this is much like my wife. She's got a thing with sounds. If we're in a movie theater, I'm oblivious. I'm, in, I'm engaged in the movie. She'll hear somebody like smacking their lips, the row behind us, like eating or opening up a giant bag of chips. And she'll be like, Ugh. the second she does that, I can't unhear the chips. I'm hearing every single, every single chip cracking in their mouth. I'm hearing the, the slurping. You can't unsee it. So I do see what everybody was talking about. And at first I thought you were crazy, uh, but, but now I'm, I'm on board. I understand it. I think for me, it was watching it on my MacBook, actually. I got a little bit closer to the image. It was a little bit brighter, and I could see all the detail that went into it. And things like the dragons moving through the clouds or the infantry scenes in front of Winterfell when it was a little bit darker and you just had fire illumination, I was so busy with taking notes and trying to gauge where the major characters were and what was happening, what the death count was, who was getting killed, that I wasn't paying attention to the little things, the piles of bodies, the way the whites were moving all these details really came to light and the picture is much sharper uh, on a proper screen so direct tv on a vizio sorry not the greatest <laughs> the the two other takeaways i have from my second time watching it i felt the pacing was better that it didn't drag as much after the second wave of whites is resurrected now that's probably just me because that first time through i was having heart palpitations and i was just uh, the music and this time i could sit back and watch it and it flowed a little bit better uh but one thing that did not change was my disdain for that piece of garbage samuel tarley he's a bigger disappointment second time through you know i didn't even remember that the white that kills edison sam just fucking turns around and runs away he doesn't even kill that white and people today were defending on social media oh well you know sam you know he's trying he's trying. come on are you kidding me as a, a, a previous you know soldier in my previous life i'll tell you an untrained or undisciplined friendly troop is more dangerous than any enemy you might face sam is actually laying on the ground and crying twice it requires four or five main characters to tell him, Sam, get up. Sam, get up. Sam, get up. Sam is being selfish. He's choosing to go to the front line just not to embarrass himself, knowing perfectly well that he's a burden on his comrades. He doesn't care about them. So Sam has no redeemable qualities. And anybody tells me differently, those are fighting words. There are some answers for that that we'll get into later in this podcast. And just to lay the groundwork for this podcast, it's going to be a little different from what we normally do on the deep dive. It's going to be like a super deep dive. Big D and I really geeked out this week. I don't know what took over us. The two of us watched the most epic battle ever filmed for TV. And what we decided to do is get super, super nerdy about it. So we're going to address some of the answers to complaints 
on the podcast. So things that listeners have complained about in the first 24 hours since the episode aired. Some of them we have some pretty good answers for. Other ones, you're absolutely right. It was bullshit. We're going to go through some production notes as far as just what amount of care went into creating this episode. And the biggest treat of all is our military man, Big D, Dick Ebert, is going to take us through a tactical analysis of the Battle of Winterfell. Guys, I read through this before he presented it, and I've never been more excited about an episode of Shad on TV. This is going to be glorious. Oh, God. Don't You're giving me too much credit. Plus, you're bordering on fanboy today. I don't know what got into you. You must have had a, had a nap today. So now I, I want to give full transparency. So I'm not claiming to be something I'm not. In my short time in the military, I only rose to the rank of sergeant, but my MOS was 12 Bravo, which was combat engineer. And that gives me a unique uh, expertise because we focus on construction and implementation of battlefield obstacles. We also do demolition. But I think the the battlefield obstacles, you know, that's a key component of this episode. And I think it makes me somewhat qualified to break it down. Now, I'm not saying I'm a West Point grad, uh, you know, but I did decide I'm going to pull out the old dusty Army field manuals and I'm going to give this the best breakdown uh, that I can. Uh, what I want to start out with is that John's first steps, and I'm going to refer to John as a leader because he's the one who was leading the 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 council who was discussing the tactical plan. So we're going to assume that John was the leader and the originator of this plan. John's first step should have been to establish an engagement area. And this is a space in which you establish obstacles to disrupt and channel the enemy so that they can be destroyed with direct or indirect fire. They should have used the time that they had instead of out there training with their sticks to poke uh, to incorporate a network of obstacles in front of Winterfell to slow and disrupt the waves of the undead. Instead, they left the field just wide open. There was little strategy that they had employed that would have broken up this flow of the undead when the battle begins. Okay, so that's a major problem, setting up and establishing uh, the battlefield. Then they take one of their biggest weapons, the Dothraki Cavalry. Putting this squadron in front of the main line of infantry, even though it's doctrinally correct, but John and the Allied commanders didn't put them to the proper use. They're meant for flanking or screening the enemy lines and gaining active intelligence on the enemy. Instead, they just use the Dothraki and order them forward to attack an enemy they can't see and blind. They just send them out in front with no cover. Now, so far, the consensus online seems to be along with you. I've read several veterans who went through the same scenario and said the key thing is you got to create a choke point for an army this big, channel them through one specific area where you can focus fire on them and wear them down at a distance. So 100% with you. As for the Dothraki cavalry, you had that rising feeling of hope as Melisandre lit all of their Arax on fire. And as they went into the darkness, some people have argued that they just rode off. They didn't just ride off. You're not only sending them off blind, but you're also clustering them together. It's a big flashlight. Hey, we're coming. Hey, prepare for us. You don't know what obstacles they've put out there. They could have lined up the giants in a row and said, hey, here they come. Let's go over there. And that move is sometimes known as clustering. And it predictably ends with the with the ruin of the Dothraki cavalry. They're, they're essentially completely wiped out. It was an unsupported frontal attack, and this devastates the Cav squadron. It leaves the Allied forces now without their primary reconnaissance asset, so they're flying blind. Now, one of my friends, Paul Thomas, who watches a lot of YouTube 
battle recreations and synopses pointed out that historically there have been situations where this worked out. And notably, to my dismay, Alexander used this sort of attack with great success against the Persians. And the idea was he had his disciplined hoplite units, which would basically, much like the Unsullied, form this sort of unbreakable wall, a barrier that the enemy would have to go through and focus on, a unified front. And then you would make these very high-risk, bold cavalry assaults, and you're going for the enemy leadership because at the time it was unheard of to get to the enemy leadership, take out their king, take out their general, and cause disarray. In a situation where you have the Night King at an unknown location and you have presumably his lieutenants behind these whites, maybe the idea was you send the Dothraki who, remember, at the loot train, at the Battle of Blackwater Rush, they sliced and diced through the Lannister army. Maybe the thinking here was this is exactly what they're going to do. And I have to keep reminding myself John and a few of the others have seen the whites in combat, most notably at Hardhome, but everybody else might have a greater degree of confidence. It's hard to convey to other people the horror of what fighting the dead is. And the Dothraki being fearless, I would say this is a reasonable attack. So the next one is the use of indirect fire. And the best way I can describe this is direct fire is a weapon that you use to shoot at somebody specific. It could be a bow and arrow. Indirect fire is something that you shoot in a general area. Any abled field artillery officer could tell you that the use of a heavy caliber indirect firing weapon needs to be in position so that they're both protecting and mutually supporting the surrounding ground units. By the Allies placing this battery of trebuchets all along the line between the cab squadron and the infantry units, they're vulnerable and they're limited use. So after the initial single barrage in support of the cav attack, they abandoned the trebuchets. They don't even use their own mass casualty producing weapon. So had the battery been positioned behind the anti-personnel ditches and protecting the castle, they could have continued to execute both explosive and illumination charges throughout the entire battle. So they could have lit up the battlefield. They could have continued to fire without fear of hitting friendly forces. And, and yielding their indirect capabilities early on left the infantry fight completely alone and without any help. Yeah, but the director needed the trebuchets to have fire on them so could, we could see how many unsullied there were. <laughs> if they were just firing all the time, you wouldn't be able to see all the unsullied. And we'd be like, wow, they're really saving a lot of money on their CGI. They didn't need to make unsullied out there. What are there, like 30 of them? But you're right, Big D. If you're going to try to beat an army of whites head to head, you can't fight them hand to hand. You got to kill them at a distance. And with area of effect fire, you got to use your infantry only as a means to slow them down for more distance kills. Anything else simply won't end well. And we saw that. Every single guy that falls is another white. It makes no sense to try to fight them with spears and swords. So then they also deployed both their heavy and light infantry with the leadership in front. Why would you do that? You're exposing them. You're merely slowing down the waves of the undead while ensuring that the Allied leadership would be overwhelmed along with the troops, forming these lines behind the protective obstacles would have ensured it would have been a much longer defense. So behind the infantry, the rear guard of the Unsullied ensured that they had a defense in depth, and behind them, an anti-personnel ditch with anti-cavalry spikes, which served as a protective obstacle before the outer wall of Winterfell. But placing the obstacles between the main body and the stronghold, the walls of Winterfell, that they could retreat to 
would have to go through the obstacle and creating a choke point for our friendly troops. That's the first thought I had when we saw that wall of fire in the trench and then they start laying their bodies down. They're coming through a space that's about four guys wide. You could just slaughter them as they're coming through. They've only got one point to walk through. And what that might do is actually force your white walkers to come forward because they can get through fire more easily and it makes them vulnerable. Just change that sequence around, use the fire to create a choke point, and then shoot some arrows at them while they're hanging out. You got yourself possibly a winning proposition. So after the ditch, then comes the wall, then comes the courtyard. That's filled with situational obstacles. That's protecting the inner courtyard and the crypt. They then put the women and children into the crypt because they mistakenly believe this area is safe. We know it's not. Might have been a good idea to you know train some of the uh, the people who are going to be down there, get, provide them some weapons just in case, you know, last ditch resort, but they don't do that. But you'll notice that we haven't talked yet about the biggest force and most powerful asset that the friendly troops had is their use of, of close air support. At the outset, Daenerys maintains two dragons for direct support of the ground defense and air interdiction against the Night King's single zombie ice dragon. While enjoying a two-to-one superiority in air assets, Daenerys attempts to use her dragons as a multi-role platform. It's a risky move. That means her forces cannot maximize their firepower on a single mission. And this eventually translates to the ground commanders being denied air support which they need it the most. It is important to note, however, that Daenerys and Jon Snow couldn't decide on when the dragon should be deployed. That seems to be something you want to agree upon at first. And it seemed that Jon was following the plan. And the plan was, we're going to wait for the Night King to show up. We take him down. He's the goal, right? You take him out and everything else will follow. And you see when Jon says to Daenerys, he says, we don't know where the Night King is. He hasn't arrived yet. And Daenerys says, well, death is here. She loses patience and flies out to protect her soldiers. It does seem like there was a good plan to use the dragons, but it fell apart when Daenerys lost her patience. See, I don't think she lost her patience. The Dothraki, are, that, that's her people, right? John doesn't have any tie to them. John wasn't sending the northern soldiers out there to get slaughtered. So I understand that she went out there out of loyalty, and I think it was the right move to go out there and at least start laying down some suppressive fire and try to take out some of the whites. But both Daenerys and Jon at this point, they start flying individual sorties over the Allied line. But neither of them attempts to conduct a reconnaissance of the enemy line until the end. And nor do they really take an effort for first strike capabilities to go off, try to find the Night King and hit him. You know he's out there. So they both end up just loitering over the area far too long. And then they become directly engaged. You know, And soon then we have where the White Walkers initiate their whiteout which forces both dragons to disengage. Also, failure to properly establish friendly dragon markings. This caused an actual green-on-green incident. They hit each other and crashed into each other. Why didn't they just try to paint maybe white stripes? So at a distance, you could say, hey, that's a friendly dragon. That dragon doesn't have white stripes. That's the Night King. Let's shoot for that one. They did this in World War II, and it worked pretty well. Well, I think they were just depending on Viserion to be shooting out blue fire all the time to let them know, you know where they were. But I can't be the only person who felt like they spent entirely too much time just flying around aimlessly. And it seems like the show couldn't even decide where the dragon should be. Sometimes they're in the clouds. Sometimes they're perched on a wall. Sometimes they're running into each other. Sometimes they're flying into trees. I almost felt as if the episode would have done better, kind of what they did with the Night King, was keeping their whereabouts in the clouds a mystery, maybe hinted by a flash of fire here and a flash of fire there, 
and really only having them emerge during key scenes. Now, again, I should clarify that I'm not complaining about this. If you are going to have dragon action sequences, I think this was executed as well as could be. It's more about it from a strategic standpoint. We're definitely dealing with some amateur pilots. So then the undead, they quickly breach the first line of defense. They slam into the Unsullied, who fight a rearguard action to allow the rear passage of a line of the surviving infantry to attempt to flee to a safety of, of the castle walls. So at this point in the fight, the ground fight is so obscured by the bad weather that the fire-breathing air support can't see the signals from the wall to ignite the anti-personnel ditch. With their primary plan unsuccessful, the Allies move to an alternate plan, shooting flaming arrows to ignite the ditch. And when this fails... They go to their contingency plan, which were using runners, which also fails. And as a last-ditch emergency effort, they choose to use Melisandre. And thankfully, this one works. Now, it was pretty cool the way they had her go out there. She didn't just fly out there or run out there on her own or sneak out there. She was escorted by that phalanx of the Unsullied, which I thought was a pretty cool move. I really appreciated the audio and the video of this group coming out, establishing their shields, spears, that grunt, which was almost ruined by Melisandre having to do yet another last second torching. They could have just easily torched the fire. It had to be right at the last second. They finally get the ditch lit. Uh, This then allows the, the dragon sorties to start seeing a line of delineation so they can start saying which are friendly, which are enemy. They can start laying down some suppressive fire, start using the fire. However effective this obstacle is, you need to have overwatch, direct and indirect fire. If you had put the trebuchets behind it, you could just continue to wail away and shoot. You also have now the soldiers that are up on the uh, on the walls of Winterfell. Why are they not shooting? It makes no sense. You have archers on the wall directly with overwatch of the enemy at the fire ditch. They're just standing there. Why are they not engaging? It's clear this is a missed opportunity. John even has his dragons sitting on the wall, looking at the dead in a stationary position. Everybody should be lighting them up at this point. Let's start with the archers. I'm assuming they probably have limited ammunition. You got to remember that these arrows either have to be fire tipped or dragon glass tipped. Not a lot of that laying around. So every shot's got to count. They're shooting at a great distance in the dark. And you got to remember that real archers... In this sort of a scenario, if you look back to, and I know this isn't the past, but if you look back to use of archery in a military setting, this was almost used like artillery. They would fire upward and then rain the fire down, as you've seen in earlier episodes, and kind of cover an area attack. You're not shooting directly at the target. With regards to John, I do agree with you there, but it's important to note as a dungeon master that dragons need a successful recharge roll before being able to use their special weapon. Otherwise, it's just biting and clawing. Dragons can't just use fire all the time, Big D. Get real. Okay, this wasn't a charging infantry at a distance. They were maybe 100 yards from the walls. They were standing there in line, packed. You couldn't have missed them. I'm not an archer. You could have put me on the wall and given me 50 arrows. I would have hit at least 48 people. Easily. Everyone's like, hey, look, they're standing still. The fire trench worked. Why isn't Davo screaming, fire, shoot, shoot, loose? I can't believe we've been working together for like two years and finally you fucking did it. You did the, I could have done this. <laughs> I, I fucking Robin Hood over here. Fuck, I could have done it. Yeah. This part of the, the battle undoes King B's theory about how there's no command and control from the Night King. The Night King signals, and then one by one, the undead decide to breach the fire trench by laying their bodies on top of it. 
They put the fire out. We have a successful breach. So the defenders attempt to suppress the force, but now it's too late. They're already at the wall and they're starting to climb it like ants. So the sheer number, as well as one devastating sortie by the Night King and his dragon, it's sufficient enough to breach the wall. The undead offensive now reaches the castle courtyard where individuals and small groups conduct military operations inside the castle into the library. They stalk Arya. And at this point in the battle, all tactics and strategies, it goes out the window. It's every woman, man, child, direwolf for themselves. Lady Lyanna Mormont, she neutralizes a giant. You know, she does a targeted strike with a with some dragonglass. She takes him down. And then we get into the part where I'm not sure what people thought about was the dragon fight that ensues with the Night King making his unconventional attack from below uh, onto our friendly air forces. And here's a good point where we see that, thank God, Daenerys and dragons are fireproof. I said prior to this episode that the last thing I wanted to see was some sort of dragon on dragon dogfight. And it was really weird when they were using fire as the weapon. They're tailing each other and Daenerys is flying just ahead of the flames. But I got to say, at least the dragon on dragon fighting was entertaining. And there were real consequences. When I saw the dragon flesh get torn into by claws, it made an impact on me. I gave a shit. I make no bones about the fact that I'm not a big fan of the dragons in this story. So it was effective. It did capture the imagination. Not too upset about it. So we know that dragons and Daenerys are fireproof. I'm pretty sure that Daenerys's clothes are not fireproof. Why is her 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 you know her beautiful outfit not in tattered flames? Because HBO spent a lot of fucking money on it. <laughs> I don't blame you. So at this point, you know, the Night King, he's forced, he's got to eject. With the Night King grounded, Daenerys attempts to do some close air support and directly strike him. However, you know, the battle damage assessment reveals that this strike is ineffective. John then moves to engage the Night King, who raises up an entirely new army of the undead to protect him. The action also causes the dead in the crypts in the castle to come back to life. These enemy combatants, with no security elements in place in the crypts, start to just devastate the civilians and logistics stores. It becomes a valuable target. And as if it's not bad enough at this point, Daenerys then is forced down onto the ground, and she's actually got to fight on foot. And as John is is pinned down by enemy dragon fire in the Winterfell courtyard and can't maneuver, all seems lost. And at this junction, the White Walkers and the King finally decides to infiltrate Winterfell and move on Bran, which was their high payoff target. The battle or whatever's left of it at this point is basically over. However, both sides miraculously have achieved their end states. The Night King has isolated Bran while the allies have drawn the Night King out from amongst the forces, and he's standing alone. And at this critical moment, Arya Stark, following her commander's intent to neutralize the Night King, uh, when she engages from above, the Night King blocks her effort, but he doesn't see this as just merely a feint. And Arya drops the dagger to her other hand, hitting him in his torso, killing him. I want to point out a lot of people have complained about this particular scene. Arya, who has never encountered the Night King, knows exactly where to stab him. Remember that her entire life, she's been fighting with Needle. And what did the Hound teach her? It was about finding where the heart is, poking people where their armor was vulnerable. This makes sense to me. She's actually great for a pinpoint kill. And the Night King, as I said on the Instacast, has incredible hubris. So him not seeing the thing that's going to kill him, the fact that he's even in that courtyard means he's already made a big mistake. The fact that he doesn't even think to set up a defensive perimeter. He's got 12, 13 White Walkers with him. Why don't you fan out and protect? You don't know how many of the Ironborn or 
are still sitting around there, the one or two arrows left, it just takes one arrow to wipe out the entire White Walker and White Army. And that's what happens here. You know, Arya's attack, it works. She hits him in a soft spot. All the enemies and the undead and the White Walkers fall. And the overall objective is completed. Had the Coalition of the Living actually followed the fundamentals of engagement, it really probably wouldn't have ended up any better than them fucking everything up. So as much as I'm tearing this apart saying what they should have done, maybe their incompetence in the end helped them come to a good place. I'm sure that the military leaders in this case were using the best practices in Westeros at the time. But you do look back on other battles, such as Battle of the Bastards, and if you had a Ramsey Bolton on your side... You might have actually won this one uh, a little bit easier. <laughs> yeah. There were other complaints about this episode. And I want to preface this by saying that really intelligent people had really earnest gripes. And they are true Game of Thrones fans. I don't doubt the fandom of any of the people that we're going to talk about. People like listener Ken L or Twitter user at GR Copel or Kevin Brackett, our buddy from Real Spoilers. These are all fans of the show. And I think the fact that they love the show so much led to some of these complaints, some of them more valid than others. And I think the biggest one, and you and I talked about it in the introduction to this cast, is the lighting. People saying it's too dark. We couldn't tell what was going on. It was a muddy mess. Uh, memes going on, you know, thanking Melisandre, Drogon, Rhaegal, Viserion, and Beric, and the moon for allowing us to see what the hell was happening. I'll be the first to admit, I couldn't tell what the fuck was going on half the time. And at my house, I paused the show. I pulled all the blackout shades. I turned off all the lights in the house. I unplugged every appliance. And I was still completely lost a good portion of the time. I do think this was an artistic decision. And we'll get to some of the production notes later in the pod. I don't think this was an attempt to save on the CGI budget. This shoot took 11 weeks of night filming. It cost over $15 million to achieve. And I think they got exactly what they wanted. It was chaos with only firelight to guide you, a little bit of moonlight, and a lot of murkiness. You're not sure who the enemy is. You're not sure where they are. And it's a mess for everyone. So I think if you want to believe that this was somehow HBO's mistake, there's only two options it could be. One, HBO cheaped out. HBO has never cheaped out on this show or any show. Or it was incompetence. I don't believe that either. So it has to be it was intentional. And that I would bet you if you had one of those brand new 8K OELEDs, I'll bet you with the true blacks, I'll bet you that this picture looks dynamite. But the rest of us broke asses with our old 1080Ps, this is our fault. We, we need to prioritize and get us some good technology. I'll bet you this would look great on a high-end TV. I'm surprised Roger Roper hasn't messaged us and been like, guys, <laughs> there's a movie theater showing episode three. It's at Alamo. They're serving up french fries and pizza and i got a commemorative t-shirt we gotta go see it come on guys <laughs> another complaint that we had was the convenient character placement people always being at the right place at the right time you know jamie's out in the front lines now he's on the rampart now he's down in the courtyard john pops up here he pops up there melisandre she's outside now she's inside when we talk about the camera following the action one of the best action sequences of all time where you always know where the main character is it was in true detective season one there's this continuous shot as Matthew McConaughey makes his way out of a robbery gone wrong through several homes as the neighborhood around him is turning into a bloodbath. That's what I consider the high point of cinema as far as following a single character. And yeah, we saw some other ones like that. And we did get that at one point in this episode. I didn't notice it until the second watch. 
when John is out in the battlefield, he's saved by Daenerys and he realizes that he's got to make his way back to Bran. You know, so he's surrounded by the whites. He fights his way out. He gets rescued. It's not that they couldn't do that for the majority of the episode, but more importantly, they didn't want to. They wanted that confusion. They wanted to allow the writing team flexibility in character placement. As we're shooting from character to character, scene to scene, several minutes are passing between our view of Jamie, of Brienne of Sam. So it's plausible that they're moving in a hurry, probably to evade whites, help each other, and of course, be in the most dramatic places the director could think of. But I think there's also plenty of time that characters are engaged in battle that we don't see. And you're assuming that they're in a convenient place. And why is that? Because the camera's there? Oh, they just happen to appear there. That's why the fucking camera's there. That's the way they, the director of photography set it up. You're tracking so many characters and trying to weave them through this massive battle. And I think it's a testament to what the production staff was able to accomplish. If this was any other show, nobody would even address this because you wouldn't expect that they could do it. Listener John from Palm Beach pointed out that the battle should have taken longer. He felt that you had season after season of this buildup of the Night King, the Army of the Dead, all of this history and all this storytelling and everything just ended in one battle in one episode. I'm inclined to agree, but after thinking about it for a while, I recall that this battle came to a standstill. When the trench was lit, everything kind of came to a halt. And it was Bran who took control of the situation. When he wargs out and everyone's like, what was he doing? Just flying around as a bunch of ravens? No, he's calling the Night King to him. He is enacting the plan, bringing the Night King to the courtyard. Although seeing a siege of sorts would have been interesting, it would have been amazing to see these two forces lined up against each other and the psychological toll that takes on everybody, I would argue that the first two episodes of the season were building up and were all part of this story. Plus, this episode itself was you know, over 80 minutes long. I'm satisfied with the amount of development that went on here. The Night King's demise comes down to his hubris, and also he's being impatient. The Night King has an undead army. They don't need to eat. They don't need to sleep. They don't get tired. He's been waiting thousands of years to take out the Three-Eyed Raven. He's there. What's the rush? Why don't you just wait eh, 36 hours? Let the unsullied stand out there in your new snowstorm. Let the food stores get low. Let the people start to freak out. How long is the Dothraki and the infantry going to stay in formation when it's five degrees and they've been there for 36 hours? He could literally just stand across the field and keep raising his arms. Yeah. You know, we had the listener from Georgia who said, sick her dragons and scorch them out. They, they just needed to, to freeze them out. Sit there for a week, a month, whatever. What's the rush? You waited a couple thousand years. Another complaint that we heard was that Arya didn't deserve the Night King kill. And this wasn't that Arya didn't have the training or anything like that, but rather that the history between Bran and the Night King, between the Night King and the Wildlings, between the Night King and Jon Snow, that there were other candidates that were better to kill him. And it's funny because people kind of want it both ways. They're like, we want the writing to not be so convenient. But at the same time, they're like, well, this was the wrong person to kill the Night King. There's no wrong person to kill the Night King. Was the North winning predictable? Yeah. As soon as the Night King slowed to a crawl like a Bond villain, you know, he's strolling in with the lieutenants. Everything's lined up perfectly. He's standing over Bran for what felt like an hour. I'm like, okay, there's no way they lose, right? You're seeing the classic trope of everything coming down to the last minute and everybody fighting and it goes into slow motion and everyone's backed into a corner. And then of course we get the resolution of the Night King falls. But did I see Arya saving the day? Hell no. See, I disagree. I had kept track of her 
I knew she was missing. So I was like, okay, she's going to pop up somewhere. And I was just hoping. I was like, please don't be wearing Bran's face. Please don't be wearing Bran's face. I kept expecting the Night King to come closer. And then Ari would hop out with her dagger and stab him that way. I didn't expect her to come leaping. Was she jumping out of the tree? I think the tree was behind Bran, but we should remember that Weirwood have the huge spanning branches. So maybe at some point of the trees, I think she was just creeping in the dark. Oh, hell no. She did. I mean, she jumped like a spider monkey. Did you see how high she got in the air? There's no way. I don't care how much parkour or maybe that pole was like a pole vault that she came and pole vaulted over the White Walkers. There's no way. They better explain how that worked because she came out of nowhere. She even made one of the White Walker lieutenants hair move. Did you see that? Like the breeze? That was Arya like going just flying through the air. By the way, that uh, White Walker was a guest star, Edgar Winter. That's what they meant when they're saying Winter was coming. But Arya, for the people who argue that she didn't have the history necessary to kill the Night King, I want to point to the fact that the show told us time and time again it would be Arya closing his eyes. It starts with Ned's sacrifice to save his daughters. There was more meaning to it than just a father sentimentality. There was legacy there, as Ken L has written in. There was purpose to it. And then Arya's own sacrifice and suffering through everything that she's been through that made her the weapon she is now. It gives it more meaning. Also, we have the prophecy by Melisandre, who says that she's going to close brown eyes, blue eyes, and green eyes. Clearly, this is the blue eyes. And what do we tell the god of death? Not today. It's not just that I'm not going to die today, but the god of death, the Night King, not today, bro. Also, want to point out, Azora High and Arya all start with the letter A and have four letters. So obviously... Yeah, we've now drifted into tinfoil. You've gone from fanboy to crazy boy. All right, let me get real then. The crypts. Even in an interview with Peter Dinklage, he's like, yeah, Tyrion's smart, but I guess he's not that smart. I have no explanation for this one. We all said there's no way that the crypts are actually going to have dead come to life in there because that would make no sense. It would make everybody on the show an idiot. It did give us a great scene between Sansa and Tyrion, but really that could have been achieved by Whites just breaching the door to the crypts. I did not enjoy this part. I mean, you notice that you had Soup Girl. She was down there. I saw her twice. Why didn't Soup Girl do some training? At this point, she could have sprung into action and just said, hey, everybody get behind me and started poking them as they were coming out of the crypts. This was an opportunity to make that Soup, you know, Oliver Twist scene worth it. I think the Instacast would just be 15 minutes of me groaning before we even got started. <laughs> but there is one gripe I think has great credence, and I want to address it on the pod, the plot armor. And I, I love that this term is being thrown around because I think it is, it's so accurate and so telling. In my book, this is the most valid complaint. I don't want to see my favorite characters die. And the King B said, God, I hope they find a way so that all the characters can survive, but it still makes sense. And I understand that some of these characters are being saved for the wars ahead. Obviously, we have three episodes left. Not everybody is safe. People will continue to die. But it just doesn't sit right with me against such insane odds and with the madness that is war and how war is just unfair. Just because you have a good story doesn't mean you're going to survive. That so many of these characters managed to make it while thousands around them were being slaughtered. So I didn't have a problem with this until the second time I watched it. And then the show did themselves no favors. Not only did all of our main characters have plot armor, but they grouped them together. So it was obvious that they plaid plot armor. It wasn't even like they tried to mix Brienne and Jamie with five or six other red shirts. They were off on their own. When John is pinned down conveniently, uh, you know, in the courtyard to keep him away from meeting his doom at the Godswood. We see Brienne, Jamie, Podrick, Sam, and Grey Worm. They're all surrounded by whites. 
There's nobody else. No other survivors are fighting off and encircled. So you look at them and you go, holy shit, you know, these five or six people, that's it. They're near exhaustion. They're, you know, they're, they're fighting to the end. They're all characters we know. Mix in some generic soldier. Mix in a Dothraki who we've never seen. And then it wouldn't be so obvious. The show made it worse. Now, this was an intentional move by the director. In HBO's behind-the-scenes view, he talked about the idea was to film each of these main characters fighting his or her individual fight. So really what they did was they had Jamie, they had Brienne, they had Grey Worm, uh, they had Podrick each doing a fight sequence. And they filmed the entire fight sequence. Uh, then they used pieces of those fight sequence. So as John is making his way to Bran, he's running by all these people who are allies of his and who are favorite characters of ours. And the idea is that he's going past all of them toward the objective, that Bran is the most important part. And he's not stopping for anything but the goal. And we talked about how everybody stops to help out Sam. A key thing that I missed in this scene is as John is making his way to Bran, Sam gets pulled back. He goes to ground. A white is on top of him and about to slaughter him. And John has to make the decision. He abandons Sam. He lets go of Sam to go to rescue Bran. And that is a very telling characteristic of the type of leader John is becoming. He is developing as an individual and on his way to becoming the hardened man he needs to be. Hardened man. It doesn't take a genius to know that Sam's not worth dying for. Sam's laying on the ground crying. I'm not going to go out there and rescue him. Are you kidding me? If John only knew Sam's performance on this night, he would have gone back and killed Sam right there in the courtyard. So one of the funny things the production staff talked about was with Sam, they allowed every other character to have cool scenes. So they're like, all right, Grey Worm, you do that spinning thing with the spear. And John, you're going to go head to head with a dragon and look cool and slice through a bunch of guys. And John Bradley, who plays Sam Tarly, they kept telling him, no, you're not allowed to do that. He's like, my inclination was I'm in this battle. I want to be cool and fight. And every time they would do it, they'd be like, no, you're not allowed to. And so what they kept doing is throwing stuntmen at him to have him tackle him and throw him to the ground. And nobody else was getting that treatment, just him. And so what actually happened was he was knocked down. They had no more stuntmen to throw at him and he didn't know what to do. And so he just reacted to the scene. So he just sat there and cried. They captured it on film. And that's that's what it was. Brilliant. And before we get a barrage of um actuallys and emails to us, I want to point out once again, reminder, these are not necessarily our complaints. We were addressing complaints from the audience. And if you do have anything to write, write it to the King B, mm-hmm. who was busy watching last night's episode of Barry for the fourth time. On to the production notes. I want to take a couple minutes uh, before we close out to really show our appreciation for what HBO put together and just run through the grueling pace and the amount of care that went into this, things that I didn't even catch. And it speaks to the realism of the show the quality of the show, that we don't even think about these things and we take it for granted. I literally said to a coworker today, it is a great time to be alive, to have television like this to complain about. And they're like, who the hell are you? And I'm like, no, I, I mean it. And I think we could start with the factor that was hidden the most by the darkness. All the care that went to the costumes, the props, and the action. In looking at the making of, it's fully lit. They have the production lighting as they're going on there so everyone can see what they're doing. They're not tripping over each other. And when you see it under that light, you realize that these people are all wearing their armor. They've all got weapons. The action is all there. It's not like they skipped anything by making it dark. And again, when you view it on a proper screen, you can see that the firelight should be enough that you can make out those details. 55 nights outside filming this scene. And that's not just the actors. It's the extras. It's the production staff doing these scenes over and over and over again. Lighting fires, choreographing fights. Uh, Amelia Clark was saying it was 
negative 14 degrees and too cold to snow, the lighting was no mistake. We talked earlier about how the darkness was intentional. Every part of the lighting was intentional. Uh, The director of photography actually mapped out a color scheme. Remember, as the episode starts out, you have just moonlight. It's pure moonlight. Everything is crisp and clear. And then you have the clouds sort of roll in. It diffuses that light, makes it ghostly. And that is one movement of the episode. And then as Melisandre... Uh, lights up the trench and everything turns blood red that drowns out the winter storm and it turns everything into a, a blazing hell that begins movement too in melisandre's eyes you can see the fire light up and then you also see it from a, above as it encircles winterfell and that's a perfect example of how game of thrones plays with grandeur and detail they can do it big they can do it small and then as it finally gets to theon's last stand the episode is drawing to a close that fire dies out the moon returns And it brings that tranquility and that ghostly essence. The snow starts to slow to just a light flurry, and it brings closure to that battle. Yeah, and I think if if you don't take the 40 minutes to watch this behind the scenes, you're doing yourself a disservice. When you watch this, you're going to have to sit there for a second, and you're going to say, am I really bitching and moaning about the placement of our key players on the battlefield? When you see what went into this, the white giant, that's actually a human performer. And the way that they incorporated, they try to always go with physical, practical effects whenever they can. You think a lot of this is CGI and easy? Watch the behind the scenes and you'll put everything into perspective. And I I found myself having much less gripes. You can complain about the plot, but this is, like you said, the top of the cast. This is a visual masterpiece. And once we all get good enough TVs, we're going to acknowledge that. Yeah, that giant... I didn't even stop to question that it wasn't an actual giant. I didn't realize that until I watched behind the scenes. I was like, oh, shit. Yeah, that's a guy in a suit. You know, they film him over green screen. They double his size. Then they got to separately film Leanna Mormont being held up by a robot arm in exactly the right position. Put those two things together flawlessly. Go back and watch that, man. It's it's insane. I mentioned on the Instacast that they couldn't just show us 80 minutes of straight battle, you get numb to it at some point. They even thought of that. So the long night was laid out in three acts with three separate genres. And you mentioned that before, Big D, there's a, there's a horror movie element to this. So they started out with suspense, thinking that the scariest monster is the one you can't see. For a long part of the episode, we're basically fighting darkness. And it's, it's the idea of what is it out there? What does the dead army look like? When is it going to appear? What's that sound? They move into the second act of a horror movie where Arya's inside of Winterfell. Things get quiet. She's in the library and she's hiding from singular whites and that suspense builds. And then finally, as John charges back into Winterfell to make his way to Bran and you have just a pure action movie, everybody in their action sequences. It's amazing. Yeah, the, the, the production staff often talk about the pyrotechnics and the fire and the way they would promote it to the people who are going to work on the show. They said this won't be a happy time. You'll be miserable and you'll face challenges that you won't be happy on a daily basis. But at the end of it, you will be happy that you were part of the show. This is like a resume builder. How many other shows they say, okay, we're going to need a trench 900 feet long. We're going to need some steel logs so we can burn them over 55 days. You know, we're going to need to have it. So it's safe. Uh, We're going to have to light them up in sequence. This is shit that people never get to do on any other show. 
So to be part of this show in history, after this, you just put Game of Thrones on your resume. And if you're doing pyrotechnics or fire, you're getting hired. Even something as simple as the dead bodies that are on the ground. I just assume they just had a bunch of guys lying down. They just put a call out there. Hey, give you five bucks for the day. Come lie down in the snow. No, no, no. They were like, we need prop bodies to litter around the ground. But prop bodies, dummies are super heavy and you got to move them around all the time. So they got creative and the crew actually invented these lightweight discs uh, that had molded bodies painted and textured on top of them. So you can wedge them, you could stack them, you can easily move them. So they had like 300 bodies that they'd move from scene to scene. So you're seeing like the same bodies over and over again. But then they're like, well, what about close-ups? People are going to notice that it's a painted body. Well, then you get some real people to lie on top of it and uh, be dead, which caused a lot of scenes, kind of like early seasons of The Walking Dead, where like they break for lunch and people are like, oh shit, that's that's a real person sitting up to go get a sandwich. That's kind of cool. It's like those pop-up targets that you shoot out in the range. Yeah. And finally, two other things I wanted to talk about was Arya's special weapon. Once I heard it explained, the amount of thought that went into it was astounding. So the idea was Arya needed a staff that was great for, as you said on the Instacast, keeping the enemy at a distance, right? You don't want whites close to you. They can bite, they can claw, they can tear, they can stab. And so for open air fighting, when she's on the ramparts, when she's on open ground, that's a great weapon. But as she goes through walkways and tighter quarters, that's why she needed to break that apart because a five-foot-long or a six-foot-long pole arm is completely ineffective in a hallway except for just one thing, which is poking. It's unidirectional. You get stuck. And if you notice, as Arya gets into those tight quarters, that's when she breaks it apart and can, can you know become a whirlwind of attack. And not only is Arya developing in the story, but Macy Williams is an, as an actress – uh, decided that she wanted to learn to fight left-handed to mimic the way Arya fights in the books. You know, she's she's lefty. Macy Williams is actually righty. The side effect of that is she becomes ambidextrous as a human being. The actress Macy Williams becomes ambidextrous, and they're like, "Shit, we got a whole new aspect to her fighting style on screen." If you want to talk about somebody who deserves to get the cool kills, watch the amount of training and practice that she put into this fight choreography. It's amazing. Yeah, and if you want to question it, go get a couple beers and try to play your friend in ping pong with the opposite hand. That shit will be ugly real quick. Now imagine having a sword fight with like 15 stunt guys. <laughs> It'll make you have respect for Maisie Williams. I wouldn't mind having a sword fight with about 50 stunt guys. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> Finally, this is a shout out to the King Bee. The first thing that we talked about after watching this episode was a Viserion with half his face missing. And I totally missed this on the first watch until the King Bee pointed out to me. Like I knew something was wrong with, with Viserion, but I didn't understand how cool it was. John wasn't just fighting an undead dragon or a zombie dragon. Uh, he was fighting a dragon with tons of holes in his face and his neck, and the fire was spewing out indiscriminately. This was a truly undead creature that was just lashing out in this courtyard. I wondered how they got that to look so good. And the steps they took was to make a bronze sculpture of Viserion's face and then push actual fire through it on a darkened stage and then use that film for the scene uh, you know, where he's wildly torching the courtyard. Look at any other show where you've got dragons. Look at Game of Thrones in earlier seasons when they show the dragons. It looked cheesy, cartoony. This looks real. It looks terrifying. God, you remember the first time when they had Daenerys rescued from the, the Sons of the Harpy and the fighting pits of Marine? It looked laughable. It looked like she got on the back of like a, a just a rubber dragon. And I was like, oh, this was this big moment of anticipation. If you're a book reader, you knew it was coming. And it looked laughable. To get from that to this dragon fight, you know, we had a, we had a dragon air-to-air -air fight. We had a, a dragon spewing flame out of the side of his face. 
It, we've come a long way in a couple of years. And I hope HBO takes note of this because as we've mentioned before the season never started, HBO is kind of going with a, a new strategy. They want to go maximum content. They want to become another Netflix. We don't need another Netflix. Netflix is Netflix. And honestly, after s- seeing something like Game of Thrones, it's hard for me to transition to anything else. So HBO, keep doing what you're doing. Give us more of this. I look forward to The Watchmen. I look forward to the Deadwood movie. I look forward to everything else that you're putting out. Maybe even Lovecraft Country. This is the gold standard for TV. We've said it before. And uh, I hope that we get we get more of this even after Game of Thrones is over. Yeah, Netflix is like the Taco Bell. It's the fast food. You know, you're going to go on there knowing that you're going to watch something. You'll probably regret it shortly after. HBO is that fine dining experience. You're not going to go every day. You'll go on the weekend or special occasions. But I'm willing to pay for it on Netflix. You know, I'll watch Stranger Things. Boom, canceled. I'm done. You know, I'll turn it back on maybe a couple months later. It's not worth it. But my HBO subscription, that is year round. So please don't change. Now, the side effect of going deep into a few topics is we didn't get to a lot of topics. And we're going to leave that up to you to decide where the show goes uh, for Friday's Small Council. So be sure to write in at hosts at shoutontv.com with any of your observations, any topics that we missed, and we'd love to share those on the listener mail episode. Also, give us any questions you've got, and hopefully we can answer them for you. We've got a few questions of our own. Starting with my big question after all this is, with regards to prophecies, we saw the show essentially throw prophecies out the window with this episode. It seems like Game of Thrones has decided to abandon some of the deeper theories, and that's okay with me. I don't really have a problem with it. I just don't see how the current tone and pacing would accommodate things like The Prince That Was Promised or Maggie the Frog. It seems to me like they're going to wrap up the existing storylines and really go with what's straight ahead of us and right in front of us. Uh, So for me, I got two. The first one is, uh, how quickly will summer return? You know, I, I want to know how, when will the summer come back? And my main reason for doing this, we have a biohazard situation on our hands right now. We've got a couple hundred thousand dead strewn across Winterfell. If you're hoping to stay there and use this as a fortification, if summer comes back, that is, that's going to be a dangerous place to be. You're going to have to do a giant fire, you know, that the, the whole North will see. My second question is about the Night King. So now the Night King is most likely dead. And I know you hate when I put on tinfoil, but I'm going to put it on so people can write in and tell me what they think. Just because the Night King is most likely dead, we should not forget or assume that Bran's arc has just stopped. Bran is still the three-eyed raven. So what do you think he's going to be doing the next three episodes? He's not going to be sitting around the godswood just like dropping one-liners being, I'm waiting for a friend. You're a good man. He's going to be coming up with some new stuff. He's going to be warging. He's going to be possibly going back in time. And maybe he could still be the cause of all these problems that we've seen. And that would be our bittersweet ending. I'm just banging on him doing more general bird stuff. I'm leaving now. Where are you going? Where are you going? Don't worry, Theon. I'm just going. Fucking tell the people what you know. Come on. Hook us up, Bran. Well, that concludes this week's episode of Shout on TV Game of Thrones edition. Uh, be sure to follow us on social media and share with a friend. We're on Twitter, Snapchat, and Instagram at Shout on TV. On Facebook, just search for Shout on TV Podcast. The website is ShoutOnTV.com. And you can email us again at host at ShoutOnTV.com. We're going to finish up this episode. I'm going to start the edit, and we're going to start pouring through these emails. Already, the insights coming in are fantastic. And if you don't feel like writing in, you can call in a voicemail at 914-719-SHAT. A reminder, that cuts off at about 
two minutes. So try to keep it short and sweet, and we'll try to get you on the podcast. Wherever we're fine podcasts can be found, including iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and YouTube. Be sure to subscribe. And if you stop by iTunes, please be sure to leave a review. That helps the podcast grow. If you'd like to contribute to the podcast, you can always help out by going to shoutontv.com slash Amazon slash PayPal or slash Venmo to contribute through PayPal, Venmo, or Amazon. Also, if you'd like to help us out in finding sponsors, uh, just go to shatontv.com slash sponsors and fill out this brief survey there that'll help us find sponsors that you want to hear from. In addition, check out our sister podcast, Shat the Movies, where we cover 80s and 90s movies. You can find all that at shatthemovies.com. Uh, also, if you if you have a friend or a family member who likes Game of Thrones, likes talking about Game of Thrones, most likely they might like a podcast about Game of Thrones. Share us with them. That's the way you can help us the most. Money is great. helps keep the lights on. But everybody out there, if everybody recommended one or two friends, send them a link, say, hey, give this a chance. That would help us grow. We might even pass cereal then. And at that point, all bets are off. Please share with your friends and loved ones. We might even get cooler theme music. Oh, yeah. All right. On behalf of my co-host, Big D, Dick Ebert, and the King B, I'm Gene Lyons. Be sure to join us on Friday for the Small Counselor Listener Mail Edition. Am I doing okay so far? Yeah, just slow down a little bit. Have I been that crazy the whole time? No.